welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Athul K. Acharya, an impact litigation associate at Braun Hagee and Borden LLP. We will discuss his article, Abstraction in Software Patents and How to Fix It, which is published in the John Marshall Review of Intellectual Property Law. So welcome to the podcast, Athul. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I got to say, I was so happy to read the final version of this paper after reading the draft you sent me a while back, because A, I think it's really good, and B, I, I, I got to say, I really think it's really well done. I mean, it, like in a weird way, it reads like beautiful code almost. <laughs> it's like so perfect. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And, and thank you for your comments on the draft. Uh, um, they, they actually really helped me sort of come up with... Uh, uh, that well, the ending um, and the sort of flesh out the proposal that I had just sort of uh, stuck on at the end in the draft that uh, that I sent you. So thanks for that. My pleasure. Anytime. I'm always happy to offer comments, especially to to junior scholars. Um, so, Athul, I, I was thinking that for listeners who might. <laughs> Those listeners out there who might not be that intimately familiar with patent <laughs> doctrine, <laughs> I'm sure there's a couple. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I wonder if you could start by talking about patentable subject matter and the abstract ideas doctrine. Uh, sure. Sort of what 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 role does the abstract uh, ideas doctrine play in patent eligibility? Sure. Um, and so, I, yeah, just stop me if I forget sort of uh, how much background people have, because um, obviously I practice in this area for a long time. Um, but yeah, so uh, patents are, um, there's, a, there's a statute, 35 USC 101, uh, which says what, uh, what can be patented. And it's really broad. It says any, um, any process, manufacture, uh, machine, or composition of matter can be patented. Um, and some courts uh, have said that that basically means anything under the sun made by man, something along those lines. Um, but the Supreme Court, actually, from from almost the earliest days of the American patent system, uh, has, has, uh, has said that there are certain implicit exceptions uh, to what can be patented. Um, and those exceptions have sort of morphed and mutated over time. Um, but they basically encompass um, sort of... Uh, the, the the modern formulation is is pretty good, I think. It's uh, laws of nature, natural phenomena, and abstract ideas. So laws of nature is a pretty sort of self defining category, like uh, E equals MC squared, or the law of gravity, or um, uh, you know, pick pick a, a law of nature um, that's not patentable. Um, uh, products of nature also, um, or sorry, natural phenomena these days uh, are also relatively um, self-defining, although there's more. Um, there was there was one big case on that uh, not long ago uh, involving gene patenting. Um, and then abstract ideas is the third category. And uh, as befitting uh, a category called abstract ideas, it is quite, it is itself quite abstract. Um, <laughs> it's not very clear what uh, an abstract idea is um, that, Lack of clarity is, is exacerbated by the fact that uh, the Supreme Court um, sort of was active in the area for a while, and then the Federal Circuit was created, and Supreme Court just sort of retreated from the field. And the Federal Circuit 
purported to follow Supreme Court precedents, as all circuit courts must, uh, but was actually quite hostile to them. And so they sort of munged up the area of the law quite a bit. Uh, and then recently, the Supreme Court has um, uh, re-arrived in force. Uh, and um, it's just thrown thrown the area of law into disarray. Um, although I do think, you know, I, I opened the paper with sort of a, um, uh, a, a compilation of some of the um, not so nice things people have said about the abstract ideas doctrine. I do think that uh, in recent years, I mean, so Alice, the sort of seminal Supreme Court case in the area was 2014. It's now only 2019. Five years is not that long in terms of um, doctrinal development. Uh, and I do think that the doctrine has sort of started to settle down. Um, although even as I say that last year, there was a federal circuit case that sort of kicked up the, the dirt again and made it um, much more of a murky field. So we'll see. There may there may be more room for the Supreme Court to um, tamp down the doctrine. Um, but yeah, so the abstract ideas doctrine um, has two parts. Um, the one part is uh, whether your so a patent consists of a, a lot of different parts, but the um, the part that's that sort of uh, sets out the meets and bounds of what you have a monopoly on. Uh, is the end, uh, the claims part. And um, I give some examples of what claims look like in the paper. Um, and so the abstract ideas doctrine says first, uh, is your claim um, directed to an abstract idea? Uh, and this is kind of like a high pass filter. So if, uh, if your claim is directed to uh, like something physical, something you know, like a, an LED screen or uh, a dump truck or a screwdriver, um, that's that's obviously not an abstract idea, so you're in the clear. Um, even as I say that, there was a federal circuit case in the last week or so that um, that declared, can't remember what it is, but some, some, some like physical thing that you could hold in your hand declared it an abstract idea and- uh, <laughs> What? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's one of those situations where uh, you, you can hold the object in your hand, but the innovation was really in the software inside the the thing. Mm. Um, and I, I, I didn't read the case. I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, I'm very busy. I'll have to come back to this. This is going to require more than just like a five-minute breeze through. Um, but anyway, so in theory, at least the first step of the doctrine is, um, you know, are you describing something that's sort of tangible? Um or is there an abstract idea that you can sort of um, like a pithy statement of the idea um, that uh, a court will agree with? Um, so, uh, for example, the patent in Alice was directed to uh, a two-word abstract idea, uh, intermediated settlement, um, having a middleman uh, help you um, uh, finalize a transaction, something along those lines. Um, and then the second step is, okay, if you're directed to an abstract, if your claim is directed to an abstract idea, um, um, uh, is there anything more uh, in the claim that transforms it? Uh, an, an inventive concept is the terminology in the doctrine that transforms it into a patent eligible application of the idea. Um, and I think this is really where sort of most of the meat of the doctrine is. Um, and 
some of what I'm doing is trying to flesh out like what, like how that's been used. Um, and what you see is in software cases, especially what the federal circuit is looking for is, um, are you, uh, are you offering an implementation of your idea? So it's fine to have an idea, right? Like all patents originate in ideas. Um, but you can't just have the idea and then claim the idea and call it good. You have to claim an implementation of the idea. Um, and so a lot of, uh, a lot of where federal circuit case law is converging is, uh, in, in looking for that and looking for the implementation as opposed to the idea itself. Mm. Um, so that's, that's sort of the basic, uh, framework of the doctrine. And then, um, there are some genres of patent, uh, claim that, uh, are often found ineligible. Um, and, and they sort of, um, feature heavily in the paper. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the most common genre is the do it on a computer claim, um, which was really popular for a while there because the patent office, um, was just letting a lot of them through where basically you take some longstanding, uh, business method often, or just something that, um, people have done. And, uh, you say, all right, do that, but do it on a computer. Um, and I, I think that was, that was Alice. That was definitely Alice. Um, Bilski was an earlier case, which had that in some of the, uh, the what are called dependent claims. Um, and, uh, you know, you can sort of see how in the eighties, um, doing something like accounting, on a computer, um, you might you might figure out a way to do that and think, wow, I've really invented something neat here. Um, but but uh, if you don't describe how you did it, um, that doesn't pass the eligibility filter. It does. It's not enough to just say do it on a computer. That's one genre. And then the other genre that you see a lot of, which is sort of related, um, is uh, claims that just um, state the result. And so this is what I was talking about earlier, um, where, uh, if you just state the idea without an implementation, um, another way of saying the same thing, but sort of, um, stated analogously, it's, it's sort of another way to reach the same result of the doctrine is if you just state the result without stating how you got to the result, without claiming how you got to the result, um, then that's also a common genre of ineligible claim. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so your 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 paper focuses specifically in on how the abstract ideas doctrine ought to be conceptualized in relation to software patents. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what a software patent is exactly, and how kind of significant software patents are in the patent ecosystem, and sort of why they present a sort of particular potentially present a particular problem in relation to this kind of abstraction question. Yeah, sure. So what, a, what is a software patent is actually, um, uh, there's, there's academic debate on that, believe it or not, but, uh, in, at least in, in the core of the, uh, of the category is, uh, claims on software. So claims on, um, uh, a, a software method of, and they're usually method claims, um, software method of doing something. Um, I say they're usually method claims. They're, they're often stated also as, uh, um, uh, product claims where the, the 
it's not product, but uh, the, basically where the method is embodied on a physical medium. Um, that's that's a that's a piece of patent silliness, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a claim on a software method, um, and uh, the reason that uh, software patents are sort of interesting and important um, and and need uh, need a strong, I guess, abstract ideas uh, doctrine is because a, a lot of patents these days uh, are software patents. Um, I mean, almost every, you know, something like a John Deere tractor uh, has a lot of software in it. Um, mm. And in terms of uh, what people are spending their time doing, you know, they're spending their time on their phones, they're spending their time on their computers. Um, just a lot of what people interact with on a day-to-day -day basis is software. Um, mm. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of innovation happens in software. Uh, and then also a lot of rent seeking happens in software patents. Um, mm. So for example, uh, in one study, and I mentioned this in the paper, in one study, something like 80, percent of patents challenged under um, Alice, under the Abstract Ideas Doctrine, are software patents. Um, they have a special tendency to be abstract um, in, in large part, well, not in large part, but sort of, well, in part, because uh, they, um, you know, you're not describing um, a physical thing. You're describing uh, a way of doing something which sort of intrinsically is going to be one level of abstraction removed from um, from a thing that does something. Mm. 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 Well, so uh, what exactly does a software patent claim look like then? And like, why why do you think software patent claims are sort of prone to abstractness as a word, in a in a way that might be um a problem in relation to eligibility right so this is sort of the um the meat of the paper the the reason software patent claims are prone to abstractness uh is there's twofold um one the the do it on a computer genre of claim so um uh Computer science, right? The the science of software, um, it defines itself as the science of abstraction. Um, I uh, the the idea for this uh, paper sort of came to me when I was thinking about why um, why software patents are so often found abstract, and I was thinking about it, and I I realized that um, at that point it was twelve years ago. Uh, or more, no more. Anyway, I realized that my very first computer science class, my very first um, first time I stepped in a computer science classroom in law school uh, and sat down the first 10 minutes, within the first 10 minutes, the, the professor said, computer science is the science of abstraction. Um, mm. And uh, that that's an important clue for why software patents are so often found abstract. Um, and what he meant by that and what the, um, the, the computer science literature means by that is that a lot um, a lot or all, depending on how you look at it, of, of uh, what software does is deal with um, abstract uh, representations or models of other things, um, often of real world entities. So um, if you are, uh, if you're writing like a credit card processing software, right, um, 
you're not dealing with the physical credit card. You're dealing with an abstract model of a credit card. Um, if you're writing uh, a word processing program, you're not dealing with a physical document. You're dealing with an abstract model of the document. And when I say abstract, what I mean is that you are um, you're removing details of the physical thing you're modeling that are not relevant to the problem you're solving. Um, so, uh, for example, with a credit card, like it's not like my my Chase credit card is uh, made out of metal. Um, that is completely irrelevant to a, uh, a a model of a credit card for purposes of um, processing it. Um, so they don't uh, they don't keep that detail. They don't retain that detail in the model. Um, or you know, if uh, if you're looking at a word processing program, you know, there's no um, there's no physicality of paper and ink. Um, you know, are you using like uh, the fancy cream colored paper or um, you know some cheap uh, newsprint type stuff? Um, none of that is uh, modeled in uh, Microsoft Word. Um, so when you and when you claim uh, a software method, you're not claiming um, like what the words of your claim are going to say something like you know um, a, a system for processing credit cards wherein the or a method for processing credit cards wherein the credit card is stored on a disk or something right like you'll say something like that the words of your claim refer to these abstract models mm. so your your sort of um, your claim words are going to be um, the, the nouns are going to be abstractions they're going to be um, one level removed from the the physical things that they refer to or what what one or more levels removed from the physical things that they refer to um, and then sort of add to that the fact that claims um, claims are meant to abstract stuff away, uh, even mm. from even from physical uh, physical um, inventions. Um, you know, if you invent a new car seat, um, you uh, unless it matters to the functioning of the car seat, you don't have to claim whether it's uh, leather or cloth or polyester or whatever. Like you're claiming um, the the aspects of the um, car seat that are relevant to why it's novel and non-obvious and so on. Um, you don't claim every last detail of it. So just like software, claims involve a level of abstraction, and they should. You don't. You, sh you shouldn't have to claim every possible variation um, of your invention, um, mm -hmm. and you just couldn't. You know, there's just there's just an infinity of them. Uh, so claims are abstractions, and then software is often uh, a, a, an, amalg an amalgamation of abstractions. Uh, and what you end up with is um, an abstraction of abstractions. I mean, it's 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 sort of abstraction squared, um, and that's how you end up with these dude on a computer claims, uh, mm. because uh, you're just taking real world reference, and uh, if there's innovation, uh, the innovation is in the modeling, um, but most most of the time these claims aren't claiming the modeling; they're just claiming the idea of doing the modeling um, and uh, performing some and, and achieving some result. That um, that you you know processing credit cards or something, um, and uh, that that is a recipe for abstraction um, because so many details are lost along the way that you end up with just an abstract idea at the end of it. So that's mm. one way, um, but it's not the entire story because um, there are software innovations that actually don't model real world entities at all. Um, so, like, if you have a better compression algorithm, 
or if you have a uh, a, a better programming language, um, or uh, or even like the the innovation of uh, web pages, um, which you know they're documents, but they're not uh, they don't they don't model like physical documents. They're they're hyperlinked and they can be infinitely long and they don't have pages and you know all, all these other things. Um, so web pages, uh, uh, programming languages, these things they're not modeling. Um, real-world entities, they're sort of intrinsic to the computer itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so, so you, you might think that that sort of invention is um, less likely to be abstract. Uh, and you're right, the, the doctrinal line here is the, the line between do it on a computer claims and claims that um, uh, I'm sort of loosely quoting actually improve the functioning of the computer. Um, and when you're a when you're a, um, a newbie patent litigator, you read that and you go, what, what does that mean? Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it usually means that um, that the invention, the innovation is in um, is, 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 is in something that is intrinsic to the computer and not a not a model of a real world object or entity. Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> but <laughs> such uh, such claims, such innovations are also often found abstract. Um, and this sort of goes to the more fundamental problem, um, which is that uh, one one way of reaching an abstract idea, I mentioned this already, is that if you just claim a result and, and not the implementation. Um, and it turns out that when you program a computer to do something, you're only describing results. Um, you You're not... You know, you're not manipulating the electrons uh, or, um, you know, describing how to, um, I don't know, light up the right pixels to, uh, you know, display an image on the screen. You're, um, there's, 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 a, uh, there's a lot of levels of abstraction you could be working in, but at any given level of abstraction, you're just telling the computer to do something. Um, even at the lowest, like... Most of the time, like the, the level at which most programmers program, they're using a library of functions and they're, they're literally just calling a function to put a picture up on the screen. Um, but even if you're programming in assembly code, which is the lowest level of uh, computer code, um, what you're issuing or what, what you're writing are instructions to do something, um, not doing the thing. So, you know, your instruction is add two registers. Um, and you don't care how it's done. You don't care about the gates that are opening and closing. Um, and that's not that's not an accident. That's entirely intentional. Um, the sort of most basic, not most basic, one of the most basic aspirations in computer science is, you know, you write something once you run it anywhere. Um, and what gets in the way of that is every computer has a different architecture. Um, you know, even, um, you know, my, like, uh, you know, my, my uh HP and, and your Apple Mac are going to be um, quite different uh, internally, even though they will run a lot of the same um, a lot of the same software. Um, um, so uh, yeah, it's intentional that um, programmers write code using instructions and without caring how it's done, so that the computer can just get done whatever it is the programmer wants to be done. Um, and and when the aspiration is is working properly, that's that's how things work. Um, but what that means for uh, for the for the claims on software is what you're you're, you're claiming um, 
the thing that you're claiming is itself um, a description of results. You're not claiming, you, you know, you're not claiming, um, uh, you know, it, patent laws sort of archetypal subject matter, which is like uh, mechanical or chemical inventions. You're not claiming a structure. You're claiming you have to claim results because what the the innovation is a description of results. Um, and at every level, from the lowest level of machine language instructions to the the code in which it's written, um, all all the all there is is a description of the results that should occur. Uh, mm. And and they uh, at at each lower level of abstraction, what you just see is more details about what results should occur. But it's always just in terms of results. So of course mm. your claim is also going to claim results. Um, and that's exactly what the doctrine forbids. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so, I mean, Athul, like, I, when I was reading your paper, I couldn't get, I couldn't kind of shake the impression that on on some level you're kind of ambivalent, maybe, about software patents being patent eligible in in the first place. But you propose a sort of heuristic or model, as it were, for sort of distinguishing between valid and invalid software patents, or sort of maybe even like a policy basis for distinguishing between valid and invalid software patents. Well, you know, why is that? Like, what, if any, are, are your concerns about the eligibility? And how do you think we should go about distinguishing between eligible and ineligible software patents? Sure. Yeah. So, yes, I am skeptical. Um, I purposely don't, uh, like my, you know, there's there's a billion not literally, but literally a billion uh, <laughs> papers out there uh, explaining why software shouldn't be patentable. Um, I don't think I have anything to add to that literature. Um, it is saturated. Um, the, the the basic reasons are, uh, you know, um, IP rights, uh, at least under the American conception, are typically justified on economic terms about whether they will... Um, uh, generate more innovation than they'll foreclose um, because you know the um, if you have an IP right on the one hand you uh, incentivize the creation of stuff because it'll be monopolized or because you know the, the creator will have a monopoly and will be able to exploit the IP right um, or, or, or rather exploit his creation um, on the other hand follow-on creators won't be able to use whatever that creator has a monopoly on and so um, you'll discourage follow-on innovation and the question in um, the American conception of IP rights is always, you know, does the, do the costs or do the benefits outweigh the costs? And for software, there's real questions about that. Um, this is all just one footnote in the paper, by the way, but there's real questions because, you know, software, software flourished for decades without, um, without uh, patents. Um, for decades, there were no software patents, so they're very rare and software did just fine. Um, open source software um, is openly hostile to software patents. And it's also one of the most fertile areas of um, of software innovation, so this idea that um, you know you can um, you know I, I think there's probably real purchase to the idea that uh, you need patent protection to um, to have like a functioning um, like a, like a like a drug industry. Um, that is a whole area that is not an endorsement of how it works right now, but <laughs> but I think you can make that argument uh, for pharma. Um, I really don't know if you can for software, but putting that aside, that's sort of like a, a, a ends justify the means kind of um, question, and that literature has been overwritten. But there's also there's sort of this alternate um, 
reason that some people give for soft for not allowing software to be patented. That's sort of a more metaphysical uh, uh, explanation, and it goes something like this: Software is comprised of algorithms, and algorithms are just math, and um, you can't patent math. Uh, therefore, you can't patent software. Um, and and uh, this this struck me as uh, also patently silly um, for for the following reasons, and I, I think. It's, it's understandable that uh, you might think that algorithms are just math um, because they are often described in mathematical terms. Uh, both both the actual description of the algorithm often uses, um, you know, you'll see like a summation symbol or, um, 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 well, I don't know, you'll, 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 you'll see um, stuff that you would sort of, if, if you were not a uh, computer scientist, you'd look at that and go, ooh, oh no, math. Um, and then uh, there, the study of algorithms involves a lot of math because the what you're studying is sort of um, how how efficient they are, um, what their uh, runtime is, which is to say, you know, given a certain amount of input, do they run like linearly with that input or um, quadratically or polynomially or um, um, exponentially and so on, um, and th that that. The um, the runtime efficiency of an algorithm is is sort of one of its key aspects, and so you spend a lot of time in um, the study of algorithms doing that math, uh, and that is math. Um, but that doesn't mean that the underlying underlying algorithm is math. Um, and then the the other reason, sort of, that you might naively or intuitively think that uh, algorithms are math is because a lot of algorithms solve math problems. They solve problems like um, finding all the prime numbers from one to n, or um, uh, finding the greatest common divisor. I mean, these are like some of the basic algorithms you learn in intro to CS. Um, but a, a lot of algorithms don't do that. A lot of algorithms um, are, uh, um, they have other ends, like PageRank, the, uh, the algorithm that used to, that, that, that vaulted Google to fame. Um, I mean, it, it involves math because it involves um, adding up scores. Um, but what it is is an algorithm for ranking web pages based on relevance. Um, uh, there's algorithms for um, uh, how to uh, multitask programs in an operating system, uh, how to pick the best chess move or poker move or StarCraft move, um, algorithms for uh, memory management, um, all these things that aren't math. They're not solving math problems. They're, they're solving other problems. Um, and they're solving them using a, a, a set of instructions um, that can be described using math, but that doesn't follow that they are math. Um, so, yeah, so I spend a good chunk of the paper sort of trying to refute this. And the reason it's it's such a, an important, bad, um, bad basis for excluding software uh, is because the Supreme Court's very first software patent case uh, actually used that reason. It, it, it basically said, it, you know, not in so many words, but it's basically said algorithms are math and you can't patent math, so you can't patent algorithms. And what everyone did after that was say, well, I guess we can't have algorithms in our patents, um, which isn't great because what you do when you can't have algorithms is you just describe it in words and your word description, um, it, it's... Uh, it's not just it's it's not just easier to be too 
more general and too general with words, um, sort of almost necessarily you're describing what is a precise set of um, uh, steps in um, imprecise language, um, which is doubly unfortunate because you actually have a, uh, a fairly precise <clears throat> a fairly precise notation for describing the set of steps. Um, it's what programmers use to communicate it to each other. It's this language called pseudocode, um, which sort of looks like, um, sort of looks roughly like uh, uh, the intersection of programming languages, if that makes sense. Like it's, it's common operations that you'll see in any programming language, um, or if you're writing to a specific audience, you might import more like specialized terms from um, specialized like instructions or types of instructions from um, specific types of languages like object oriented or functional. But basically pseudocode is something that's never going to run. Um, you can't compile it, you can't run it, but uh, you can look at it and figure out how to translate it into your language of choice. Um, so that exists. That has existed as long as computers have existed. Uh, but because, um, and, and I think there, there may have been an inflection point where uh, it was possible that that was how algorithms would be claimed, but after Gottschalk, uh, which was in the 60s, um, that scared people away from from putting pseudocode to claim, they tried to, well, they claimed the algorithm in words and they ended up just claiming the results. Um, and that's unfortunate because, and this is, this is an idea that's been around in, in the um, eligibility um, literature for a long time, but actually algorithms would be pretty great. Like they would be a huge improvement over um, what we have now, they would be quite a bit more specific. They'd give you an actual implementation of the idea. Um, if you had to claim an algorithm, you would actually have to have an algorithm. Um, and I've, I've read a lot of software patents where, I'm, where I look at the, the claim and I go, you have no idea how to do that. You just thought that it'd be cool if that were done. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so my proposal, and it, yeah, it, it really is a policy proposal is that, um, well, one overrule whatever part, whatever of Gottschalk is alive that's that um, still sort of says you can't patent algorithms to the extent that that's still alive. Overrule it, um, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a heresy uh, in in sort of software patents kept in circles because uh, Gottschalk um, is is the great granddaddy of uh, software of software patents not being eligible. Um, but to the extent that it it actually cause software patents to become more abstract, I think it's bad. That's one. And then two, um, having done that, require patentees to claim their uh, software, to claim their software innovations using algorithms, using pseudocode. Um, and this sort of just makes sense uh, based on what a patent, like one of the basic um, trade-offs you get with a patent is uh, supposedly in theory, you know, not really so much in fact, but in theory, um, you get disclosure of the invention uh, in return for um, giving up to the inventor, uh, you know, a 20-year monopoly. Um, and the way that a programmer would actually disclose his innovation to another programmer is using pseudocode. Um, so it sort of makes no sense that um, that's how you would disclose it if you actually wanted to disclose it, but in a patent which is supposed to require you to disclose it, you actually don't have to disclose it that way at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's the proposal. 
Um, and I sort of merged that with something that Mark Lumley proposed a long time ago, um, because what he proposed was that um, um, claims to bear results uh, in, in, in software patents in general um, be read narrowly to, um, to cover only the uh, means for those results uh, in the uh, what's called the written description, the sort of essay that precedes the claims. Um, and this is this is this is in law. This is it's a it's a section of um, patent code, um, but it's been interpreted very narrowly. And his proposal was no, interpret it broadly. Like, look at a claim and say, you know, that just describes the result, rather than just saying, does it use the word means for? Current document is if it says means for, then it falls under that section of the statute. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. Um, so that's that's his proposal, and so I sort of tack onto that and say, okay. So um, patentees should have two options. You either um, you either you know you claim your algorithm in English and you get the Lenly treatment, um, and it's read very narrowly to only uh, cover any algorithm that you disclose in the written description. Uh, or alternatively, you uh, you claim your algorithm in pseudocode and you get the Acharya treatment. Um, you get a thick doctrine of equivalence. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you claim an algorithm X and there's, there's almost an, an uh, in number, in, in number, number, innumerable number of ways to um, refactor the same algorithm to do the same thing um, and, but do it in a slightly different way uh, and accomplish the same result. And so if you claim uh, an algorithm in pseudocode, you would get, you would cover all of these equivalents. Um, mm. that's the basic proposal. Mm. Mm. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I thought this was just fascinating, right. And not a way of thinking about the kind of subject matter of patents that I had encountered before, although I'm not, you know, not really my area. So I haven't read as broadly mm -hmm. as you have, obviously. Um, but, but I, I can't help but wonder, I mean, on one level, as you say, this does seem like a policy proposal in the sense that it's proposing a, a new or alternative or additional heuristic that courts ought to use in evaluating whether or not a particular patent claim is patent eligible. But but I wonder if it also, as you kind of alluded to earlier, also has a kind of metaphysical or ontological quality to it. I mean, does it, do you think that this says anything about sort of what it means for something to be the kind of claim that can be patent eligible in a broader sense than just thinking about software, but kind of thinking about patentability writ, writ large? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know the this this shorter paper grew out of what was uh, what I was, what was trying to be a longer paper um, that was never going to get finished uh, that was going to be like a grand unified theory of patent eligibility um, and uh, yeah that's that's still languishing in my drafts folder um, but uh, yeah the 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 reason that I sort of I mean there's there's several ways to think about it right like one way of thinking about it is um, and this this is one one direction from which I approached the the software patentability question was um, does innovation happen in software 
And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, and if there's innovation happening, um, why shouldn't it be patentable? Um, now that that could be quite question begging um, if uh, if you don't define your terms, and if you do define your terms, you run into trouble because um, it's not clear uh, where the line is between sort of innovation and discovery, um, which is why you have uh, you know the the other parts of that tripartite distinction, the the laws of nature, um, natural phenomena. Um, those uh, the 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 stuff that's that falls on the discovery side of that line um, falls or falls or could fall into those buckets. Um, the other side of it is if you if you have an innovation, um, how concrete does it have to be uh, before it's patentable? Um, and uh, my answer in software uh, is it has to be concrete enough that you can. Um, uh, uh, tell someone else the innovation and they wouldn't have to do any work to implement it. Um, that's what pseudocode is. Like the, the sort of um, sine qua non of pseudocode is that it's, it's, uh, it's something that you can give someone and they can implement it in their language of choice. Um, how, to, how to take that more broadly? Um, I'm not sure. Um, it probably would be quite dependent on the field. Um, it also probably doesn't matter all that much because most of the um, most of the practical uh, application of the abstract ideas doctrine now is is in software patents, as I said earlier, and um, probably will only be more and more in software patents as more innovations become software based. Mm, mm. Well, so Athul, in, in closing, I, I I couldn't help but feel like your your paper was deeply informed by your own background as a software engineer. And I wonder if you had any reflections uh, for law students and junior scholars about sort of thinking about sort of knowledge outside the law and how you can leverage that in relation to legal scholarship. Yeah, so so I came to the law because, uh, well, because I was a software engineer and um, I uh, I knew of software patent trolls that had um, been impacting uh, open source software projects that I was a fan of or was contributing to or was trying to contribute to, um, and and also um, because of some other sort of major legal battles that were heating up um, involving technology like uh, net neutrality. Um, and uh, I think if you if you come to the law from some non-traditional field like that, um, I think it really pays dividends to, to not lose touch with uh, what you um, what you know about the real world um, from your earlier studies um, because <clears throat> I mean, the law ultimately interacts with what, what people are doing that isn't the law. Um, there's, there's no law that's sort of just law for its own sake, or at least there shouldn't be. Um, and, uh, you know, computer scientists, software engineers, engineers, people outside the law, uh, you'll often hear them say things like, why are so many of our lawmakers lawyers? Um, and I think as a lawyer, you sort, of, you sort of ask, well, of course they should be, right? Like, they're the ones who know what laws look like. 
Um, and I think it's really valuable to, to remember what it's like to be, to be on the other side of that and, um, uh, and um, have a sense of like why it was that you thought that the, um, the laws that lawyers were writing didn't make sense uh, with the things you were doing in the real world. Um, and, and that can be very valuable, uh, both in terms of practice and in terms of scholarship. Mm, mm. Well, thank you so much, Ethel. This is really a great conversation. Fascinating paper. I totally love it. I hope listeners will dive in because even though this has been a long conversation, there's actually a lot more in the paper we weren't able even to cover. Um, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity. Sixty-four lets you play hundreds more games than any video machine. Plus, draw, program, even do music. I'm more 